Welcome to the Talented Amateurs Podcast. My name is Joe Randolph, your host, and today we have Dr. Carlos Grant. He is the principal of Wade Hampton High School in Greenville, South Carolina, and also co-founder of Bold Leadership Consultants, LLC, which is a collaborative group of school leaders that successfully educational institutions aimed at ensuring students reach proficiency of academic content while learning to think critically and creatively, collaborate and communicate effectively, while also adapting to the challenges and complex problems of today. And so we really wanted to dive into this conversation as we um, continue to think about how we um, continue to help our youth grow and be the adults that we need them to be, the leaders that we need them to be, because they're going to be the ones leading us in the next 20 to 30 years. So let's get started. Uh, Dr. Carlos Grant, how are you doing today? And welcome to the podcast. Man, I'm doing good, brother. I appreciate you having me here and, and creating this space, man. I, I've been following you as well, man, and I'm looking forward to, to digging into this conversation, man. It should be pretty rich today. Absolutely. And, listen, you know, as I told you, I've been following just kind of the work you're doing from Charlotte to Iowa, up there in Cedar Rapids, I believe, right? And and then now you're back into in South Carolina, which is home state for you, I believe. Yeah. Uh, South Carolina State grad, HBCU, yeah. but then in Greenville, which is a great and lovely city. Love that, love that city. And so let's maybe talk a little, tell me a little bit about your career path and trajectory into education. So as we get started, so people know just a little bit about you. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. I, as you said, I grew up here in Columbia, South Carolina. And upon graduating high school, you know, I went to South Carolina State, had a great experience there. And upon graduating, entered the teaching profession. I got a chance to teach high school biology in Buford and in uh, Buford, South Carolina and in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I did that for six years and then transitioned to administration. My first bout in administration was in Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Had a great nine years there at Myers Park High School and at Alexander Graham Middle. I learned a great wealth of experience of being an educational leader after finishing my master's degree at Winthrop. And along that journey, I decided to get, had this crazy idea of getting my doctorate degree. And I <laughs> tackled that at the University of North Carolina Charlotte. And after doing that, I moved into my first major role in leadership, which was the opportunity to lead the largest public charter school in the state, which is at York Prep Academy right there in Rock Hill. And uh, it was at its infancy stage at that time. We got a chance to move it to a new you know, multi-acre campus where it sits now and really flourishing. And then somewhere along that journey, we had this crazy idea of stepping out on faith and I decided to move to the Midwest and I packed up my bags with my family and we headed out to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where we spent five years out there. I had a chance to lead two high schools and was also a district level leader for middle school principals. I was the director of middle schools uh, in that area. And the Midwest was a wonderful place to be. It allowed me to get a lot of different experiences about student engagement and how to redesign systems to to benefit all students and, and not just a few. But, you know, after a couple of about five winters in Iowa, home gets very enticing. <laughs> and uh, anybody who lives in the Midwest understands what I'm talking about. It's not the snow, it's the wind that blows through your bones. And so right. uh, we decided to come back home south and uh, was looking for a place to be and to call home. And, and Greenville became that place to us. It's only, you know, about an hour and a half uh, north of Columbia and our east southeast of Rock Hill. And it was a perfect fit for us and got a chance now, as you said earlier, to lead uh, the perennial high school here in the state of uh, Wade Hampton High School and glad to be here. Awesome. And as as principal, and obviously you're the, the leader, the CEO, the, the head of the school, as you've kind of made this transition into leadership, 
what are you seeing as some of just some of the complex issues that's facing education today? We hear a lot of things in terms of it's political, both uh, as well as, you know, just some of the foundational elements. But what are some of the complex issues you're seeing today? You know, there's a variety of, you know, I'll start from the one that's probably the one that keeps me up most nights is this complex issue of really student engagement and student learning and the outcomes that we want for kids. You know, there used to be a time in our history where we told kids to get a diploma and then you go find a job or maybe get a diploma and go to a four year university. And that was kind of like the pathway for most families. I know I was told that in college. I'm sure you probably had some similar experiences. And while that lasted for a while, we've hit this bubble experience where we're at this critical time in our history of this country where the college degree is no longer the avenue guaranteed success for somebody to thrive and to access financial freedom. And so for me, it is creating pathways and guaranteed plans for kids to have upon graduating high school. You know, it's not enough for a kid to get a diploma. When kids enter my building or any institution, it should be the diploma should be almost a guaranteed lock. That shouldn't be the barometer anymore. The barometer should be, what, what am I going to do post high school? What are we going to be doing to get into financial freedom, to understand how to make commerce and make business versus just being a good employee? And I think that that's a time trying for, uh, this is a, a clear time for us to make that delineation. You know, and I don't draw that just in my own personal experience. While I, I do have children in high school and I think about their experience in their, in their life and wanting them to be set up well, this is also proven to us in research. You know, uh, you follow the, uh, I, I welcome you listeners to check out the World Economic Forum that says very clearly every five years they publish the top 10 skills that students need. I'm sorry, not students, that they're looking for, that employees are looking for in their uh, next level of employees and leaders in this country. And those top 10 skills are things that kids need to be able to do, like communication skills, complex problem solving, self-care, leadership and social influence, uh, technology use, uh, technology design and programming, being an active listener and, and, and understanding how to work with people around you. Uh, you know what those top 10 skills are not, Mr. Randolph? They're not algebra one. It's not right. geometry. It's not even U.S. history. And so for us, when we in a high school level, it's important that kids understand those contents like past courses and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, it is how do we use those courses to do the real work, which is collaborating with people around you, solving problems, looking for issues and being the leaders in this next wave of things that we need in this community and in our society. So I think that's one of the major issues with us. It's a variety of complex issues, but that's the one that probably keeps me up most nights. Got you. And you mentioned, and I, I had a question around this in terms of some of those traditional versus non-traditional paths to careers. And so thank you for answering that. One of the things, I, and probably a follow-up to that is, as I think about me being in technology, I'm always thinking about how do we prepare organizations, schools, universities for digital transformation? Is that something that you're thinking about? Because as you look at how you facilitate some of those new careers, digital transformation is one of them. So how is that on your radar and how do you guys, look, how are you looking to address it? Yeah, most definitely. It's definitely one that's on our radar. And the way we are attempting to tackle that and to be responsive to that is to uh, redesign our course programming to meet those needs. You know, we listen very intently to our business and community partners and we listen to what they're telling us. And what they're telling us is very much what you're saying. You know, we're moving to this is a technology age. Information technology is really big. Cybersecurity is very big. 
And uh, we need to prepare our kids to be able to survive in that type of environment. Whether it's a career or not a career, it's going to be a part of our life. And so uh, for us, it is creating coursework and programming that allows kids pathways to get towards uh, that as, as far as actual certification in those particular areas. You know, in my building, I have five career pathways, and that's just my building alone. We have 16 high schools here in Greenville County, and all of us have a variety of different pathways where kids can plug into an area where your coursework are specific. It almost likens it to how it is in the university level, how you can choose a major and your courses lead up to a certain major. Well, the same thing here, we're allowing kids to pick career pathways that give them opportunity to explore different things. And those career pathways are plugged into post-secondary trades and skills that employers are saying that they need. But even beyond that, Joe, you know, the thing that we have to go beyond that is teaching our students once again, not to just be good employees for that company. We have to teach them how to be the employer, right? How to be entrepreneurs and that it's okay to create and to innovate and, and, and that's okay. It used to be those things were kind of the ancillary things. The kid did it, it was a special thing. It wasn't the norm. And so we got to shift that tide to where it's a norm to teach our skills, to be, teach our students the skills of, business savvy and what it means to be that way because your business can be any different field it doesn't have to be a, a brick and mortar location it can be a variety of different things uh, that allow you to understand the, the aspect of financial management that leads to your financial freedom got you and, and as you talk about careers when you look at the the careers going into education particularly for teachers in that pipeline how do you what does that profile look like now when you look at some of these skill sets that we need to have they're not the traditional as you mentioned, algebra, math, and history, where, where school systems may not, in some schools, there's also the challenge where some universities have cut funding for some of their educational programs as well in creating that pipeline. But what does that pipeline look like to help you facilitate bringing in those kind of those teachers to help build and, and manage that curriculum? You know, it's funny you mentioned that. We just today just left one of our university partners here in Greenville, and we're having really intense conversations about pipeline preparation for teachers. You know, it's a national shortage of educators in schools, not just teachers, we're talking about school counselors, administrators and such. And, and if we continue in that trajectory, um, the long-term ramification is going to be dire. And so the way that looks now is early exposure to education and getting kids excited about being potential role models for children and making an exciting career path. And so there's some intentional programming that takes place that needs to take place in middle school, sorry, at sixth grade, and not necessarily saying be a teacher, but the idea and mindset about being around service oriented, helping in your community, being a person that wants to give back. And then you take that intentional program and mentorship up to the high school level. And once again, having very specific career pathway courses like teacher cadet or ed psychology, or ED 111, where you give kids early exposure to what you normally would have received your freshman year in college, you get a chance to do that in high school. We call that dual enrollment. It allows you to be both in a high school course and in a college course where you have a university partner. And students leave university and you leave the high school realm, not only with the high school diploma, but they're leaving with that college credit that can lead into their um, teacher preparation uh, major at whatever the university that we're partnering with. And I can't tell you how valuable that is. You know, major shout out to the Call Me Mr. program, which is based right here at Clemson. And it goes off into a variety of other chapters here in the upstate. I believe there's some, some national chapters around the state, but it started right there at Clemson between collaboration between Clemson University and South Carolina State University, where 
at, you know, actively recruiting um, African American male teachers, African American males to become teachers, primarily in your primary grades, K through eight. That's where we really need it, and in some secondary as well. But being very intentional and very purposeful about the recruitment, the retention, and the attraction of students to go into the teaching field. And I'll tell you, students want to do that, but you got to tap them on the shoulder. You got to have uh, very intentional programming and support behind them that comes with mentorship and support, financial support for them in college, and then even the support after they graduate, um, going to their various careers. Absolutely. All right. Very good. Thank you for that. What, you know, I'm curious as you've moved from Charlotte to Cedar Rapids to now Greenville, what are some of your observations as you look across those three school districts and are there similarities? I'm sure that's some difference, but love to get your thoughts with your perspective has been just seeing those three different distinct, different school districts. You know, I've, this, that's a very good question because uh, what I have experienced is certainly some commonalities, right? We're, they're all public school settings. Certain things are still the same. But the main thing that I've been able to capture is that they're all in three different communities. They have three different mindsets when it comes to how we support public education and the things that we're comfortable with in expressing with our students. You know, in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, which is a just a, you know, the 19th largest district in this country, really massive system. It's a large machine. And, you know, you're in that system. You have to kind of pick your affinity group and pick a, pick a, pick a space that you can exist in that space. And, and it's hard to make systematic movement because the machine is so large. And so it takes a long time to make systemic change and to see the outcome of that change. It's, it's got to be very intentional. And you require a lot of partners to make that happen. Now, you're going to find that in any major city. I'm sure the same thing in, in Houston or Orlando or certainly L.A. and New York and things of that nature. At Cedar Rapids, I was a smaller community. You know, it's only four high schools in Cedar Rapids. And then there's other smaller districts around that area. But because it's smaller and because it tends to be a little bit more, that community kind of had a lot more intentionality when it came to what focus that we're going to add to the educational component. I'll give you one example. That community partner with the school district to think about how we assess students and the redesign of a fundamental thing that we have always known as the student report card. You and I probably grew up in a system where the report card was A, B, C, D, F, right? And the A meant something, meant you probably did a very good job in class. But what we also know, Joe, and you can admit this or you're not, some of us made A's in the class, studied very hard. But if I ask you questions about that class later on, you'll probably tell me, I don't know if I can answer that question, right? And so some of us have grew up in those systems where the A or the B or the C probably didn't represent what you truly knew. It maybe had a little bit of what you knew, but also had something to do with behavior right? Turning things in on time and maybe some extra credit. And so that community, my point is that they fundamentally looked at that redesign and tried to find a system of show, truly showing our kids what they know and, and really showing that as a product and retrain or transform the report card to really be reflective of learning. You don't find that in every community. You know, those things are sometimes sacred in certain communities. And then certainly looking at a place like Greenville, upstate South Carolina, a little more conservative than most communities. And uh, learning how to navigate those systems sometimes can be a, a barrier sometimes. You know, a prime example right now in this time of our country, we're in the midst of this social uprising. There's a lot of consciousness around equity and inclusion and diversity. And a community like Greenville and others like this can be a challenge because we it's not a familiar thing that we've had that conversation to some groups. 
that's a very frightening conversation to have because it challenges comfort zones a little bit. And so uh, a community like Greenville um, is beginning that journey of how we can become more inclusive, how we can be okay with, with differences and how we can grow our intercultural development. And so, so while in all three of those cases, the similarities that is still public education and what I found is the, the difference is how the community supports the educational institution and, and how far we're willing to go in that collaboration to do what's best for all students. Got it. No, that's a great point. And as I've moved from Charlotte now out here to Reno, Nevada, I definitely, as I pay attention to just local politics, school, et cetera, I've noticed that community and the differences, especially when you have different demographics, you know, coming from a large system like Charlotte, where Reno is smaller and, you know, ranking, they're, you know, pretty bad in terms of that, that ranking across the states, but definitely see how the community element impacts that. So, so thanks for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about Bold, right? I know you co-founded Bold Leadership Bold. Consultants, right? And look like some great work that you guys are doing. I'm seeing a lot of the activity you guys are now out in the community. Talk to us about the mission of the organization and what are some of the impacts that you're looking to, to have as you start to move into this space and why now? Well, first, you know, Bold came out of this very organic and authentic need to belong. You know, being here in the upstate of South Carolina and being a black male educational leader, it's a lonely existence. It's not many of us in this space, right? Not just in Greenville, I'm just talking about just nationally. You know, only 2% of all educators are black men. And that's a lonely existence, right? And so, and then that dwindles even further, educational leader as a principal or a district leader. And so about this time last year, right at the beginning of the summer, right on the cuffs of George Floyd and all the things that was happening, COVID, it was just like a really taxing, heavy thing on a lot of our shoulders. And so a group of gentlemen in this area got together just to create this affinity safe space to be among other people and not having to shed a piece of yourself to exist, which oftentimes we have to find ourselves doing. You have to shed a piece of yourself to just exist in this space, right? You can't just show up and be who you are. Well, this affinity group just naturally occurred. And then we started looking around at each other thinking, man, we've got among the 11 of us, we've got over 100 years of educational experience. And we've led different groups. We've presented national conferences. We've done a lot of different things. Why not try to package this in a way that allows us to help others to get to where we are who aspire to be bold leaders? And so bold was born. And so now Bold Leadership Consultants, LLC, this collaborative group of educational leaders aims to do several things. One, we want to help organizations recruit and retain men of color in education. We're very particular about that. The second is that we want to help organizations improve and their intercultural development among um, the things they want to be able to do to understand where they are in their equity and diversity and inclusion mission. And so we have packages available for people that want to do that work. And then third, we want to be able to school districts and or schools with their own professional development in their buildings, where we recognize that not every school district is like a Greenville County Schools, the largest district in the state of South Carolina, or a Charlotte Mercenburg Schools that have all of these wealth of resources. And so we aim to be a support for smaller school districts who just need expertise to come in and help them, particularly with their current leaders, and they want to help the leadership development. And then the last piece of this is helping universities to recruit and retain students to go into the educational majors and obviously matriculate into the actual career fields. And we service that support group for people in those particular spaces. But that's bold leadership consultants, and that's why we exist. 
Awesome. I love it. In one of your areas you mentioned, I think when I was just kind of doing a little bit of research, you talk about fundamentally redesign the educational structures. Share more about what that concept and what does that mean? Yeah. So, you know, just like from the authentic piece of why these 11 men came together, the feeling, this real feeling that we have to shed a piece of ourselves to exist in the space and be successful so it's not to upset the system. The same thing is true for students. And so particularly students of color and, or marginalized groups. And so we look to um, identify systemic issues that exist in our school systems and then bring on allies to help us address those systemic issues. What we have found often in education is that these systems exist sometimes unintentionally. You know, my grandma always said, you can't see what you can't see, right? And so we often have to be the eyes and be the voice in a system that sometimes it's hard to see where those barriers are. I'll give you a prime example of just one small example. My school just recently redesigned our dress code, right? And some people say, oh, it's student dress code. Well, the student dress code is a representation of the culture that exists in any building, how you treat students, how we monitor that, how we want students to show up and represent themselves. And there was a reason why we had to redesign the dress code at my school. Uh, specifically because it was unintentionally and disproportionately affecting different types of students. It was disproportionately affecting female students. It was disproportionately, disproportionately affecting students who were transgender. It was disproportionately affecting students who were of color, who may have, who may want to wear certain headgear for hair care products and things of that nature, or hair care reasons and so forth. And so we had to fundamentally come together and look at that. And I'm very proud of the work that came from that. And while that may not have been a bold initiative coming from bold LLC, it's an example of the systemic things that may happen in school systems. The same thing can be said about how we respond to student behavior in a building, right? That we can look across the spectrum in most educational institutions and see, I can almost guess while walking to a building, what group of students are gonna be disproportionately affected by systemic ways of responding to student misbehavior. And so just really working with school systems and working within the system to identify what those systems are so that we can be very intentional to get after the real goal that we really want, all of us want, whether you're black, white, or whatever, we all want students to realize their growth and development, and we want them to help them to realize that promise that we've given to them that is ultimately the success in post-secondary planning. Awesome. And when you think about school systems and universities, you guys are working with them from, you know, from a bold leadership perspective. What are some of the strategies? Because a lot of times when you got some of these schools, such as leaders, universities, they're focused on the here. They can't really look and have a systems thinking approach and look beyond a year or two. What are some of the strategies you're helping them to balance with driving student achievement today while also staying focused on future growth and transformation? Yeah, so one of the things that you really have to do when you're talking about systemic change is you have to look at your belief systems and uh, really work with the people who are at the table, who are the leaders making these decisions. And so for us, it's very important that we work with those individuals. And, you know, if your leadership doesn't have the right mindset to make change, it won't happen. You can put any kind of programs you want to put in place. It's not going to be sustainable because the support and the resources won't be there. If the leaders aren't excited about making the necessary bold changes, it just won't happen. And so for us, it's very important that we help leaders, first and foremost, or anything else, work through that, that long-term investment in looking at their values and their beliefs. And then that then shapes into how do you shut up? How do you set up the system to come from that? 
you know, one example of things that we offer is the ability to work through something called the Intercultural Development Inventory, or IDI for short. And what that does, it allows organizations to look at where they fit in a continuum of five different orientations from uh, denial all the way up to adaptation, how they view themselves and how they view others in the organization. It allows people to really unpack those values and beliefs. And so that's the that's one of the primary strategies there. If people aren't working in that space, the long-term outcomes that you want are probably not going to matriculate. And I mentioned the leaders in this space. You know, how are you guys working with the leaders, particularly when we think about the skills and competencies, similar to my question around teachers, that those skills and competencies have changed in how they need to lead and, and run the schools. Now, how are you guys working with these leaders to help them develop so that way they can continue to expand their skills to their professional development, but also ensuring that they're able to be effective in leading in these organizations, these universities, these school systems around just the growth and then the, the changing dynamics of the, of, of the students as well? Well, you know, that's the beauty of what we, we offer is the that's what you're describing is that long-term kind of investment in in us and so when these leaders are jumping on board with us we call them our battle buddies when you are a battle buddy with us that means you're in the trenches with us and you are engaged in all the different modules of professional learning that we're engaged in you know we're educational leaders too we're in the trenches right now we're having to adapt to all the various changes in education but we have a skill set that allows us to ebb and flow and so it's important that as we're working with those educational leaders, that they learn those same skill sets. You know, all of us have different standards by which we measure our growth. Uh, and here in South Carolina, we call them the PADEP standards, P-A-D-E-P standards, which are just educational leadership, really core six really domain standards by which if you do it very well, you will be successful. I don't care if you're a, a university president or high school assistant principal, the fact of being very true and being very intentional in those standards will allow your growth and matriculation to happen. And the beauty of when those leaders are working with us is that they get that real-time professional learning that happens on a day-to-day basis uh, when you are locked in step as a battle buddy locked in with us. Uh, Got you. Now, one thing I am curious about, when we talk about leadership, in some cases, you may have transferable skills. For example, you may some leaders, if they can move from tech into financial services and, and into manufacturing. So there's certain leadership skills and competencies that are transferable. I'm curious, can non-traditional educators move in and lead a school effectively? Now, obviously, they'll have to learn the nuances of the, the methodologies around student engagement, student achievement. But I'm curious, if is there a space and a window where you can have non-traditional leaders come in help run the school and may give a different perspective, particularly with the business approach or maybe the tech approach. So I'm curious about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, here's what a non-traditional leader, educational leader would need. And I don't even know if we need to call them non-traditional because a leader, in my mind, is a leader. And you've got to have a fundamental love and appreciation and, and a passion, a true passion that you want to see them thrive not just survive. I mean, you really want to see them to thrive. And if you have that passion, the other thing, right, we can teach anybody the the laws of education, right? Uh, How to set up an an IEP meet for students who have special needs or, you know, how to financial management of the books of the building. Those things are learned traits. What is really hard to learn is empathy for other people and wanting to be a role model for children. So what I've found 
is that and I think all of us can test this is that people who are coming from the non-traditional educational world have a an easier way to transition this because they don't have to unlearn bad practices. People who've gone up in a traditional educational uh, pathway like myself, went to college for education, majored in education, did a teacher, became an assistant principal, then a principal, district director. I have, in my pathway, I've had to unlearn bad practices, things that were taught unintentionally or maybe unintentionally along the way, right? And so I think that people who are coming out of a non-traditional world see the world differently. They offer great suggestions about efficiency, things that we can do differently, things that translate into post-secondary education. I think that's a beauty into doing that. Awesome. Yeah, I w- I'm always curious about that. Just following some of the some of these organizations like the Bro Foundation, where they try to bring in some of these non-traditional educators. And I haven't really seen the data around it. I'm big on data. So if the data tells tells the story and it shows that this, they're getting results, great. But I know just some of those programs and how they started to spin up, like Teachers for uh, Teach for America and some of the other programs that get a little political in some regards, just because they do take, you know, um, jobs from from teachers, right? But I'm always curious to see what are some of these conventional ways of how we help lead and educate. So you know, but you, but in that same point, I hate to interrupt real quick, but yep. you know, while some of those things may be controversial, it, it, it they're still needed because it puts pressure on the system to innovate. If you don't have those external forces, you'll always stay in your comfort zone. You'll never innovate and think about how to do things differently. And uh, in education, it's no different. You know, we have to be thinking differently about how we provide services for students. You know, I'm still grappling with the idea that we start kindergarten at age five, and then we fundamentally believe that kids will grow at the same rate because of age. And then we're shocked when they don't. Right. Like, I think that fundamentally needs to be looked at. We need to explore. You know, we're no longer in a system that relies on agriculture, which is why that system was designed to make decisions for school, the school calendar. <laughs> we still start school in August, which is based around the harvest season. We don't have to do that anymore. Right? We have machinery that does that. The children don't have to help us bring the corn in anymore. We don't, right. or, or pick the cotton. We don't have to do that anymore, but we have the same system. And then we're shocked and we don't have the results that we want every year. We're saying, wow, we have to, we still have a gap. Yeah, we still have a gap because we haven't changed. We haven't fundamentally changed anything. We just put a little bit of intervention on the way to make us think we're making progress. And yet we're still doing the same thing each and every year. Gotcha. And I never knew that's how they based the school system on harvest. And I never knew that's that's so so thanks for sharing. I think a lot of people probably don't know that. So that's interesting. As we kind of move into the last segment and really love the work that you guys are doing with Bold, what's been and I'm always curious about the personal journey. And you've done a lot of things and 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 done some really great work. And as you mentioned, some of the unlearned things, the things you had to unlearn. What's been that self-reflection and things that you've learned about yourself across these multiple journeys? You know, I think the the a lot of different things. One of them has been that, that we're good enough and that we we don't have to settle for mediocrity or we can be great and you can be excellent in your craft. And to some degree, we have to give ourselves permission to do that. You know, one thing I we we started to realize as we done did this journey and got to know each other in, in this group is that we were somehow the exception to what you normally see as a black male in education. 
you know, traditionally, and research shows this, we found that Black teachers are disproportionately clustered in these under-resourced schools with few opportunities for mentorship and professional development, which often contributes to burnout, high attrition levels. And then what happens often is you look at examples like a Carlos Grant or a Damon Qualls or a um, Edgar Henson, which are some of the gentlemen in the group, and you say, hey, look, we've arrived because these gentlemen are principals. And what we're saying is, no, like we're good. <laughs> we, we're very confident in our skill set, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And it's okay to call that out. And I just realized along this journey that there's some people who want to address that and want to impart and be a part of that solution. But there's a lot of other external pressures that they need permission not to let that hamper them. So that's where I think, you know, a group like Bo exists where we give people some degree cover to talk about these issues and to have these conversations openly. And so, you know, when your, your, your listeners uh, go follow us, they'll see how we create these bold conversations, very much like what you're doing, um, but with other educators all around the country to bring these things to light and to also acknowledge it and to make it known, but also to continue to give us that boldness that we need to uh, to continue pushing on it. But that's kind of the, one of the biggest things I've learned, just that uh, there's a lot of stuck people and it's more than I thought. I, it, it's people that I thought would, were ready to move and they're just not ready quite yet. And we got to keep helping helping them create the space to do that. Awesome. Very good. So as we as we start to wrap up, you know, one of the things, and then maybe if you can share, what are some of the big projects or some of the projects or initiatives you're working on with Bold and coming up into this next year? I can't believe we're coming up on the <laughs> the end of the year it's going so by so fast but what are some of the initiative projects you guys have in store coming up in the next year we have a lot of big things uh the first is that we have like i said before monthly bold conversations that for right now have been in a virtual we are working on several in-person bold conversations where we're bringing in national speakers we're going to be introducing pretty soon a bold conference that'll be held here in Greenville, South Carolina. We're really excited about that, where we have some national speakers as well on that platform and creating a a day and a half symposium type format, but the Black Tide Gala event to highlight and recognize Black educators all around the state. So we're really excited about that. And then the last piece is we are working on several uh, projects with some local universities that we're looking to announce pretty soon well to uh, enhance their college of education programs specifically geared around the recruitment and the advancement of uh, recruitment and retention rather of uh, of black male educators in their programs and you know something that those universities aim to do that's always been part of their mission and and now we're excited that both gets to help them to bring some of that mission to uh, to reality awesome very good. So as we wrap up, you know, one of the things I always like to leave the audience with is three things before we go. If they didn't take anything from this conversation, what would be three things you would leave them, leave the audience with before we wrap up today? I would say, number one, children need us. They really require adults to have a curiosity about their lives and a passion for them. So you don't have to be a teacher to give a kid that get involved in mentorship. I would say, number two, it's life or death for our children. I truly mean that. So as you are engaging in mentorship, really pour into them. That will give them the encouragement they need to be to move through life, but also instilling them something that will lead towards financial freedom. I really believe that's a strong thing we need to be giving kids so they don't repeat the same cycles 
uh, that, that has been ailing so many families, generational poverty, generation after generation. And the third thing is follow bold leadership and really engage with us. We really want to expand the space. We envision bold leadership being in every space, not just in education. We think that it can exist in law enforcement, in the certainly in the legal system, in local business, in politics. And so we we think that these skill sets we're talking about in education are transferable. Um, and so uh, people can uh, follow us at our website at boldleadershipconsultants.com and can find us at the same place on the three major platforms of Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. Awesome. Thank you. And you, you took, I was going to ask you how we get in touch with you. Um, so thanks for sharing that. So as we wrap up, Carlos Grant, I want to thank you for joining us. I know it's late on your end, so I appreciate you joining on, joining us and sharing your, your knowledge and wisdom. Love the work that you guys are doing. If there's anything I can help with, definitely let me know. I love, I love to see that we're driving these conversations and driving this work to help our youth. These are going to be the folks that's going to be leading us in the next 20 years. So we got to make sure they're ready and, and prepared to lead. And so I want to thank you. And for my audience, as we wrap up today, I hope you get a lot of this episode really gets you an understanding of how we need to participate in education, whether we're teachers, whether we have kids, we still can be mentors and we can still have impact. So as Carlos mentioned, follow Bold Leadership, learn more about what they're doing. If you're in the Greenville area, definitely look them up, take them out to coffee and, and understand and learn how you can get involved. So as we wrap up, Carlos, thank you again. And everyone, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you. <laughs>